Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Great show today. I have Trita Parsi on the line. He is the founder of the National Iranian American Council. And if you follow foreign policy affairs and foreign policy news, you'll probably have heard of Trita Parsi expounding on issues relating to the Middle East. Uh, But what I learned from this interview is his fascinating, absolutely fascinating life story, which you are about to learn as well. Uh, We kick off with a brief conversation about some of the domestic political barriers in Iran to reaching a nuclear agreement with the United States. I mean, I have a pretty good sense of what the domestic barriers are here in the USA, but I was fascinated to learn from Trita what the issues are in Iran, how uh, moderates who want this deal might be able to outmaneuver political hardliners who don't see much advantage in securing this deal with the United States. So stay tuned for that. If you're new to Global Dispatches, welcome. This is a fantastic episode, and you can subscribe on iTunes, get our app via globaldispatchespodcast.com, and listen to every episode on UN Dispatch. Here it is, my conversation with Trita Parsi of the National Iranian American Council. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Clearly, there are a lot of domestic challenges on both sides. On the Iranian side, I think we can divide it into several different strains of opposition. You do have a smaller, not this is not the most important element, but a smaller element that just flat out ideologically oppose this idea because they realize that in many ways it will undermine the very foundation for their own rule. So you have one faction that is thinking along these lines. You have a faction that actually wants to see a deal, but are terrified that Rouhani will reap a tremendous amount of political dividends for striking the deal. The public will be very happy once there is a deal, and um, Rouhani's popularity may skyrocket. And as a result, they want to make sure that rather than undermining the deal, they want to make sure that they undermine Rouhani's ability to turn the deal into a political win for himself. And how might they do that? Well, they can attack it. They can say it's a sellout. They can um, uh, say that this is a disgrace, you know, perhaps even go as far as treason. But in practical terms, they won't do anything to actually sabotage the deal or sabotage its implementation. You just want to make sure that Rouhani doesn't take a political win, which in their eyes would mean that they themselves would become politically marginalized. So there is one strain of opposition to the deal that comes from that purely political calculation. And in fact, I would say a lot of the Republican opposition in Congress against Obama's negotiations have very little to do with the nuclear issue or the details 
of the nuclear negotiations, but rather a desire on the Republican side not to see President Obama score a major foreign policy win. And at a minimum, try to make sure that that win is reduced to something that actually would not be a plus on his record, but something that he would be criticized and ashamed for. Um, and, very stim- Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, that, that doesn't seem terribly dissimilar to the dynamics that you're describing in Iran. Um, how, I guess, powerful uh, are is that sort of opposition force uh, in, in Iranian politics right now? I mean, well, are they on we, the ascent? Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're on the ascent. I would just add one other uh, strain of opposition that also exists, which is um, there are people in Iran who make money off of this isolation, who make money off of the sanctions. And they would not like to see their livelihood being lost right now as a result of a dramatic change that will take place uh, between the United States and Iran and between Iran and the international community. So you have these various elements that are opposed to it for these various reasons. Now, are they a majority? No. I don't think they're a majority. In fact, Rouhani's backing is pretty strong in society. Are they on the offensive? I think, on the contrary, I think Rouhani right now is on the offensive. He in his speech last week, took a very strong position, criticized the idea that um, permitting foreign direct investment to Iran would make Iran dependent on the outside world, that it would be uh, a measure against independence, uh, said that Iran can never be a successful state and a leader in the region unless it is integrated politically and economically uh, in the region and with the rest of the world. Um, and he has in the past also gone out and said that there are people who want the sanctions that people suffer from because they themselves make money off of these sanctions. And that's an argument that will upset a lot of people, ordinary people, because they're suffering under the sanction. And the idea that there are people inside a regime that are making money off of it is going to be something that's going to um, anger a lot of people in Iran. Um, how has the um, pretty dramatic drop of oil prices affected the political debate or popular sentiment in, in Iran, one way or the other, towards uh, uh, striking a nuclear deal with the U.S. or not? I don't think we've seen any measurable change uh, based on solid statistics yet. We know that the support for uh, a deal has been strong throughout. And it's difficult to see that support for the deal would go down as a result of the uh, lower oil prices. I don't know how much it would go up as a result of it because it's already very strong. It's it's not been a situation in which people have been on the fence not knowing whether they want this or not and then lowering oil prices would push them over the edge to one uh, of the two sides. They've solidly been behind the idea that this issue needs to get resolved. Um, so maybe last question along these lines um, and I'm going to ask this uh, and when you answer you should probably keep in mind that uh, this interview will live on the internet for posterity, hopefully forever. Um, but how, I guess, what, what, how might you predict, uh, we're recording this interview right now on January 8th, uh, 2015, how might you predict this year to unfold in terms of uh, an Iran-U.S. nuclear deal? I mean, do you think this is the, the year that the deal might be struck? And, and if so, how might that change, I guess, you know, life inside uh, Iran for ordinary Iranians? I think there is a very good chance that there will be a deal this year. I fear, however, that the deal will be, to a certain extent, punctuated by um, domestic um, 
squabble on both sides uh, in the sense that the deal will still be somewhat shaky because it's not clear whether the Congress is going to follow suit and do what it must do, which is to lift sanctions once the Iranians have taken the steps that they have to take. But Congress has never been on the same page as the president on this issue, and the president's ability to force Congress to do what, it, what he wants them to do is also somewhat limited. So even if there is a deal, which would be very, very important, um, there are still, unfortunately, ways that the whole thing can unravel if the implementation uh, is not pursued diligently. So I think we will first see uh, a very positive step, and then there will be certain degrees of uncertainty following that uh, in which people want to take steps going forward. You know, They want to resume trade, but there's going to be certain nervousness as to whether the new reality is a stable reality or not. Um, well, thank you. That's, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. But I think your um, take is probably not too outside, I think, like what main, most mainstream foreign policy pundits are kind of predicting at, at this point. Um, so I wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, you know, you're someone I've read for a long time. Uh, you know, I see on TV talking about uh, Iranian and, and Middle Eastern issues, but I realize I don't know sort of very much about you. Uh, so I thought this would be a great opportunity to learn a, a little bit about you, your life, your career. Um, so... I guess just to kick things off, uh, I presume you were probably born, and you can tell me wrong, probably before the revolution, right? Um, how, I don't, Correct. Uh, so uh, was, where and where and sort of when were you born? I was born in Iran, 1974. Um, that's five years before the revolution uh, in southern Iran in the region called Khuzestan, which is right next to the border of Iraq and Kuwait. And what was your family like? Um, and... Uh, Sorry. What was your family like? Like, what what were your parents doing at the time? Well, and... both my parents uh, are from that region. Uh, my father was a professor uh, at a university there. What did he uh, teach? My mother was a uh, sociology and history, uh-huh. and my mother was um, a school teacher. And then, because my father had made statements critical uh, of the Shah. Uh, in class. He ended up in jail twice, uh, being tortured by the Shah's Secret Service. When he came out last time was in late 1978, or mid-1978, and decided that it was time to try to leave the country because Iran was very unstable at the time. It was not clear what would happen. And we ended up in Sweden, where my father got a scholarship to, uh, got uh, funding to continue his research. So you were about Uh, five years old when you left um, I was four and a half. Four and a half. Left. Yeah. Do do you like what did your father say that that got him in trouble with the with the regime? Um, he was essentially just criticizing certain aspects of the Shah's policy. But remember, back in 1978, um, criticism against the Shah was very very common. But the Shah did run a pretty tight police state, so there were a lot of informants, and many of the students in class pro- probably were informants, and that landed him in jail. Um, and he got tortured, and when he got out, he decided that it's better to leave. Um, and we ended up in Sweden um, just a couple of months before the revolution fully happened. Do you have but any recollection when... of, of the travel, of the journey? Oh, from, yeah, no, from... I remember it very clearly. I remember... How did you get there? Like, how did you escape, essentially? Well, at that moment, it wasn't um, that type of a dramatic escape that a lot of other Iranians experienced later on, because had we just waited a couple of more months it would have been one of those very dramatic escapes. Um, although I do remember the difficulty 
and my mother had getting uh, the ticket and the visa and everything else because my father had to leave beforehand just to make sure that he got apartment and everything else for us and then my mother and my brother uh, would join him but I do remember getting on the airplane I remember saying bye to all our family members I remember getting to Sweden and seeing snow for the first time uh, so uh, it, it was a it was quite a dramatic change in our lives were there were there a lot of um, uh, Iranians in, in Sweden at that point? I guess how did how did your dad not pick Sweden at that point? But then a couple of months later, a lot of them started arriving because that's when the revolution did happen. It got very unstable. Uh, you know, the country was in a very bad shape. Uh, a lot of violence after the revolution, and then later on, of course, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran, and the war began. And uh, then you saw a very large number of Iranians making Sweden their home. But there's another twist to this, which is that um, when the revolution happened, my father's name was put on the list of people that the new regime said would get executed on the spot if he returned to Iran, accusing him of having been an informant for the Shah's government, for uh, the Shah's Secret Service, which was not true. My father had actually been tortured by the Shah's Secret Service. But my father decided that he had to go back to Iran and clear his name because the fear was that if he didn't clear his name, um, the new regime, uh, which pursued some sort of a Taliban-style uh, instant justice, may go after some of the family members that remained in Iran. So my father actually went back to Iran in spite of this um, call to execute him. And he went back into jail, the same jail that he was in before. He even shared the jail cell now with the same guy who was the head of that jail just months earlier when my father was in that jail. His former jail ward was now his jail mate. They did execute the jail ward, uh, but my father managed to clear his name, which to a very large extent was because of the fact that the people who now were running the jail were 20-year-olds, many of them former students of my father. And, so and they, they knew, that, they, yeah. they knew so, that he had been very critical of the Shah, and as a result, he managed to clear his name. But it tells you what a dangerous situation you can get in and how profoundly disorienting a revolution is, because suddenly a bunch of 20-year-olds are running the jails and deciding who lives and who doesn't. Uh, and, and your father was able to make it back to Sweden, I, I presume? He made it back to Sweden, but he's never been back to Iran since. And how, I mean, he sounds like an amazingly brave person. Um, how did the fact of his, his torture uh, inform his relationship with the country that he was born in, and probably, I would imagine, influenced sort of your relationship with, with the country? Well, you have to remember, we were essentially political refugees. Uh, and there's a significant difference between political refugees and economic refugees. Economic refugees voluntarily go to another country because they want to build a new life. Political refugees are forced to flee uh, because the life they wanted in their own country they're not permitted to have. But that means that psychologically you're tr still thinking about returning. You're still thinking of yourself as coming from that country, and you're still viewing yourself as being a, a guest in the new country that you're in unlike the economic refugees who very quickly want to assimilate and want to become part of the new country and make that their true new home. So for most Iranians, <coughs> because they fled for political reasons and not economic reasons, 
they were, as many of them say, essentially living with a packed suitcase under their bed for the first 30 years, constantly thinking that, well, one day I'm going to go back. So we grew up with that mentality. We grew up in the mentality that we needed to go back at some point, that um, however good Sweden was, we didn't come here by our own volition. Uh, and I think that has profoundly affected both me and my brother, because both of us work um, on Iran issues. Uh, he was at a think tank in Paris, and he's now teaching at a university in Sweden. His field of expertise is Iran, and I run the National Iranian-American Council. So Iran, in that sense, became a very integral part of our lives. Um, and it was your brother older or younger? Two years older, than me. Uh, so you, you presumably, I, you went to high school in Sweden and uh, you know, did, did all your for, most of your formal education in, in Sweden as well? Uh, yes, so I did my... Uh, master's in economics and my master's in political science in Sweden, uh, high school, that whole thing in Sweden. Then I came to the United States to do my PhD. I had spent a year in the U.S. as a high school exchange student as well. Um, I guess how, how I mean, was, was that experience in terms of, of discrimination? I mean, you know, these days, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're um, you know, minority, particularly like refugee populations in uh, Scandinavia, Scandinavian countries are often the subject of official and, and sort of unofficial discrimination. Did you ever feel that? Did you ever experience that? I mean, these are like the most liberal democracies in the world from like a social policy perspective, but they have some, some pretty deeply embedded um, issues regarding sort of integration and, and sort of dealing with, with refugee and immigrant populations. Yes. Um, there's, there's been difficulties without a doubt in Sweden and at the same time, Sweden has fared much better than most other European countries had had an easier time um, integrating people and have had a, a more open society than many other European countries. But unfortunately, the last two years, we've seen a significant um, deterioration of the situation inside Sweden when it comes to this specific issue. And, and what used to be in the past... Um, certain elements of hostility towards immigrants has increasingly become uh, a specific hostility to immigrants from uh, the Middle East, particularly if they're Muslim, of course. When we grew up, there was always things of that nature, but and when we when we grew up, it was definitely an issue, and we lived in areas where the majority were foreigners and not Swedes. Uh, but looking back at it and looking what we see today. I think there still is a big difference. There were hostilities. There were definitely discrimination. There were definitely structural challenges. But to a certain extent, I think it was partly rooted in the fact that Sweden is a country that 50 years prior to this hardly had any immigrants at all. Not to say that it was a completely um, uh, homogeneous country, but it was on the outskirts of the world. So it wasn't you know, a top destination for immigrants from uh, very different cultures. And now suddenly 10% of the population was born outside of the Sweden. So there were, there were certain natural challenges that emerge out of that. What we're seeing today seems to uh, resemble more what we saw in Germany in, in the 1930s and 20s, a very deliberate effort to create divisions within society. And that's in many ways much, much scarier. Um, so what did you end up studying? Uh, where, where do you get your, I mean, you said you got your education, your formal education in Sweden. What subjects did you pursue? 
Um, I, I got a degree in international relations, political science, and then one in economics. Uh, and what uh, what did you like end up? What did you start out wanting to do? I mean, did you know that you always wanted to be some sort of diplomat or or you know talking heads, or I, pundit, I think really, tank person? I wasn't, I wasn't really sure. I knew that I was very passionate about politics, and I had an opportunity to do an internship on Capitol Hill in 1997, and that really made me. Uh, interested in, in coming back to the U.S. I thought it was very fascinating. Um, but Who do you work I for on w- the Hill? On the Hill, I had an internship with former Congressman Bob Ney, who happened to be my host to that when I was in the U.S. five years earlier as um, a high school exchange student. Just a totally so, random uh, chance occurrence? Total, totally random, the fact that I ended up with him. And very interestingly, he was a student in Iran in 1978 and spoke Farsi. So where um, Bob, uh, where did Bob Ney represent? He was representing uh, 18th District of Ohio. Ohio, that's right. Um, and yeah. uh, was your um, stay with him in high school your first trip to the United States? No, because I had family in the United States. I've been back and forth several times. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was one of the longer stays. Um, and then later, the year after, I was um, doing a, an internship with a Swedish foreign um, uh, UN mission at the UN. So uh, I had the opportunity to uh, spend a lot of time uh, both at the UN and in the U.S. Congress. Um, so what was your? So my understanding is that you were at one point you were a Swedish diplomat for a while. Is that right? Yeah. So I had essentially a diplomatic internship, which is called an internship, but it was actually. Uh, quite a bit more advanced than the regular internship. So we were, uh, the title we were given was third secretary at the UN mission. And what was your uh, role there? So uh, the responsibilities I had, I was uh, on the team that was uh, handling the situation in Iraq, Afghanistan, in the Security Council. Uh, Sweden was uh, a non-permanent member of the Security Council that specific year. Uh, what, year, in, what year are we talking about? This is uh, the last six months of 1998. And then in the third committee of the General Assembly, which dealt with human rights issues and social issues. Uh, I guess, what was your um, relationship with the uh, Iranian delegation at the time? And did you have any sort of interactions with them? Did you have any... Um, uh, I just kind of sort of be be curious. Of course, you know Sweden obviously, you know, unlike the United States, has has formal diplomatic relations with Iran. So what? Uh, I guess did did you ever sort of cross paths with with some of your Iranian counterparts? I, I remember seeing a few of them, um, particularly because Sweden um, and the EU uh, led the resolution that uh, criticizes Iran's human rights record in the Third Committee. Uh, and as a result of that, of course, the Iranians wanted to come and speak to the Swedish delegation, and they had uh, many concerns and uh, criticisms of the revolution. The, revolu- uh, the resolution, of course, passed. Um, so in that context, uh, it was interesting running into them. Um, and for how long were you at the, the United Nations? That was six months. Oh, so, so a pretty, pretty quick stint. And what was your next move after that? Then I go back to Sweden to finish up my graduate work at uh, Stockholm School of Economics and at uh, Uppsala University. And what, what sort of things were you studying? Um, I was studying uh, a whole set of different things. Um, I, I wrote my papers, one of them on sanctions, um, and uh, a lot of uh, political theory, um, uh, 
flirting with both neorealism and with uh, constructivism. Oh, yeah. Where do you fall on the neorealism versus constructivism uh, <laughs> uh, plank? I think I'm more um, of a constructivist myself, but uh, yeah, always, well, always I interesting mean, to hear. I, I think at the root of it, I am a neorealist, but I, I see a tremendous amount of value in some of the concepts in constructivism. It's just that using it as a model, I found to be less um, effective and valuable, but at the same time, there's certain concepts in constructivism that I also believe are difficult to deny. Um, I think we're at a point, you know, I don't think there's many people left that believe that either one of these types of approaches to international relations provide a, a complete answer. No, I think I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, and, and, you know, these discussions are by definition uh, academic and sort of uh, one of my, I think, um, quibbles and qualms and disappointments with the, the sort of my formal graduate study my formal graduate degree in, in international relations and security policy was its mm. total lack of ap applicability to real world situations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, I, we digress. Um, so my understanding though, is that y you also went to pursue a PhD, correct? In, in the U S when, when did that happen? That happened in 2001. Um, it was interesting because my, uh, the program began late August, 2001 and, I wanted to write about Afghanistan. As I mentioned, I had worked on the Afghan file at the UN Security Council. I felt that it was a very important issue that was very understudied. And two weeks later, 9-11 happens. And overnight here in Washington, everyone became an Afghan expert. So I felt that, wow, okay, uh, this market has been saturated and I need to go and focus on something else. Because by the time I would be done by, with the PhD, I, I wasn't so sure that Afghan experts would be that uh, much high in demand. So I started asking myself, what is the next big likely conflict in the region that is going to define the region? And I thought that uh, it would probably be Iran and Israel. And no one had really done any profound work on Iran and Israel. Everyone treated it as too hot of a potato. Uh, but I thought it would be exciting to um, uh, focus on that a bit deeper and see what I could find. Uh, and so what about the Iran and Israel were you, were you trying to explore? Well, you know, trying to explain why, what the root of the conflict was between Iran and Israel, how it affected uh, the relationship between the United States and Iran, because there's a very strong triangular relationship between the U.S., Israel, and Iran. And in the dissertation, what I'm pursuing there is explaining what drives foreign policy, looking at Iran and Israel as a very good test case of comparing um, uh, a more of a realist approach, in, in this case actually a neorealist explanation of the relationship with an ideologic, uh, ideological based ex explanation, mindful of the fact that over the course of about 40 years, you have uh, the relationship between Iran and Israel go up and down, while at the same time you have a very ideologically motivated revolution in Iran. And then to be able to use that as a case of seeing to what extent was that revolution and the ideology um, that's critical in, in explaining what drove the foreign policies of Israel and, and Iran uh, throughout this period. And, and what did you find? Uh, what I found is that ideology actually is a, a very poor explanatory variable. The major shifts that have taken place in Israeli-Iranian relations are much better explained by changes in the geopolitical context that they have found themselves in. Uh, Iran and Israel despite the revolution in 1979, despite the very 
anti-Israeli ideology of the new regime pursued relations behind the scenes throughout the 1980s. The Israelis were adamantly pushing Washington to talk to the Iranians and, and make up with the Iranians, even when Khomeini was alive. Uh, and at, at, a, at the time of Iran's ideological zeal being at its height. But then later in the 1990s, when the zeal is cooling down considerably, but the geopolitical context has changed because common threats between Israel and, you know, and Iran evaporate, and those common threats were primarily Saddam's Iraq and um, the Soviet Union threatening to penetrate the region, you suddenly see a significant spike in Iranian-Israeli hostility, even though ideology is going down. So I concluded, and you know, this later on became a book that I wrote, that um, ideology is, of course, very important. You cannot deny it. But as a driver of foreign policy, it tends to take a second seat, uh, a backseat to um, uh, geopolitical uh, considerations, even for a state as ideologically uh, uh, that, I, that defines itself ideologically as Iran does under the Islamic Republic. That sounds so sort of counterintuitive to me. I mean, because, you know, one of the, the, the most you know, biggest motivating, you know, factors in Iranian foreign policy is the ideology of exporting their revolution, right? And one of the manifestations of that exporting of the revolution was arming Hezbollah, right? Which, which at the time was, in the 80s, was engaged in a civil war in which, you know, the Israel and Israeli proxies were one participant. So I would imagine that that would have been like the big driving uh, friction between the two countries. But, but you are saying it's something else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just take Hezbollah as an example and, and the idea of exporting the revolution. Exporting the revolution had an ideological component without a doubt, um, but it was a continuation of um, an Iranian desire to be seen as the main regional power in the region. Uh, this was a desire that was equally strongly held by the Shah. The difference was the Shah pursued that goal by creating alliances with Israel and with the United States and trying to outarm the Arabs. And ultimately, his strategy failed. The new rev uh, regime came in with a very similar uh, aspiration, but defining it in Islamic terms and defining the world that they would be a leader of, not just as West, West Asia, but uh, specifically the Islamic world. So that's clearly an ideological component there. But the tool that they were going to use was... Uh, political Islam and challenging the United States rather than allying with the United States. But the objective ultimately remained pretty much the same, to be a leader in the region. And that's why exporting the revolution is actually less of an ideological objective rather than an objective that is cast in ideological terms. And when it comes to Hezbollah, for instance, um, the Iranians tried to export a revolution throughout the region. They were fundamentally unsuccessful. Um, there were no country in the region that followed suit. I mean, the only countries that they had some limited success in being able to at least create a movement like Hezbollah were in countries where the state was weak and there was a large Shia minority. So they tried that in Bahrain with a strong Shia majority and, and they failed. They tried it in Iraq and then led to an Iraq-Iran war. In Lebanon, however, paradoxically, as a result of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, the Shia in the south ultimately were essentially driven into the arms of the Iranians because the Iranians had tried 
to do things in, in Lebanon and, and had actually failed because the Shia there were not that interested. Once the Israelis invaded, and it took a while between tensions between the Shia in the south and the Israeli uh, occupation really came to blossom, but once that happened, the Iranians found in the Shiites in Lebanon a very receptive recipient of their message, and they enabled themselves to, to uh, um, uh, create Hezbollah and, and get a strong foothold in Lebanon. But the desire to get into Lebanon existed prior to Israel uh, invading and had very little to do with targeting Israel as much as it had to do with the idea of getting other countries in the region to become allies of Iran. Um, so when you, when you wrote your, your, your thesis, I mean, it, it seems like it was, as I said, sort of a counterintuitive argument at the time. How was it received and, and um, you know, where, where did it lend you? Where did, where did it send you next? Well, um, at the time when it came out, it was, of course, controversial because um, the book also made it very clear that Iran is a rational actor. It's an actor that obviously the United States has strong disagreements with, but the idea that there would be some sort of a, um, uh, irrational, suicidal actor, which at the time was very strongly advanced by the Bush administration, uh, was fundamentally false. Um, in a strange way, that was a controversial argument back then. Today, it's, it's seen as a, a very obvious reality, and, and the irrationality argument has you know, almost completely stopped to be used in, in the public debate. The other main um, point that was made is that what you're seeing between Israel and Iran is a strategic rivalry driven by um, uh, geopolitical um, uh, factors and a competition for role and power in the region. Um, that was controversial because the, the conventional wisdom said that Iran and Israel were engaged in a purely ideologically, religiously motivated conflict. And that too, I think, has, um, um, my argument essentially has won out. Even very mainstream think tanks uh, in Washington, D.C. are consistently referring to the um, uh, strategic rivalry between Iran and Israel rather than the the religious conflict between Iran and Israel, which again today may sound completely natural, but 10 years ago, that was actually a controversial argument to put forward. Well, I was going to AEI meetings 10 years ago. I, I, I uh, do not disagree that it was uh, not controversial back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I'd like to talk a bit about how and why you founded the uh, NIAC, the, the was it National uh, Iranian American Council. Um, what what are, what's the origin story of of that organization? Well, it actually started um, the co the conversation about it started immediately after nine eleven. You see, I had 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 some involvement in the Iranian American community, and there was always this belief that um, Iranian Americans as a community have been very successful. They've done really well in the United States. They've lived the American dream, highly educated, very affluent, but politically. Um, having essentially a non-existent voice. And the explanations for that within the community itself was ranging from stereotypical answers such as the idea that um, uh, the community doesn't get along to the idea that their message is an unpopular one and uh, as a result there's structural barriers that they can overcome. Well, 9-11, I think, kind of disproved both of those rather simplistic explanations, because 
um, the Iranian-American community was overwhelmingly abhorred by the terrorist attacks and wanted to stand um, unified against those. They, they were unified, but they still couldn't find a collective voice. Secondly, that was a very simple message. What was easier than to say these are horrible terrorist attacks that right after 9-11? It was the most... Um, it, it was the easiest message you could come out with, but still the community failed to do so. So we decided to take a closer look to, into why it is that this otherwise successful and um, sophisticated community had failed so miserably in having a collective voice in this country. And we concluded that part of the reason for this is that um, the experience of the community had set it aside a bit from other communities meaning, A, they came from a country that whether you left before or after the revolution did not have a democratic tradition or culture. Um, you had a very top-down political system, and you're coming to a country that is essentially bottom-up, uh, organized politically. Secondly, it wasn't easy being an Iranian in the United States in the 1980s because of the hostage crisis, because of the enmity between the United States and Iran. So a lot of Iranians decided just stay out of politics, keep a low profile, and some even decided to tell all their neighbors that they're Lebanese or Turkish or Italian or whatever, but essentially keep their identity very, very low and hidden. After 9-11, it became clear, though, that that's not a strategy that really works out in the long run, because the first laws that were passed in Congress in response to 9-11 actually made it next to impossible for Iranians to get visas to come to the United States and visit their family members, but it did nothing to address the visa um, uh, quotas and abilities for Egyptians or Saudis to do so, even though they were involved in 9-11 and Iranians were not. And I think that became a bit of a wake-up call, and we made the argument to the community that uh, the community needs to participate in the democracy that we have here in the United States, needs to contribute to it. And the idea of keeping a low profile and staying out of politics is ne neither good for the community nor is it good for the United States. Um, um, and that what, was the what number, origin uh, of it. How, about how many uh, Iranian uh, Americans are there? In the... the the census puts the community around 350 or so thousand. But there are systematic um, factors that indicate that the number should probably be much higher than that. For instance, the census doesn't have a box for people to put in Iranian. Instead, most people just check the Caucasian box, which is uh, technically correct. There's a lot of Iranian Americans that are Jewish or Armenian, and they may uh, check the Jewish box or the Armenian box instead of writing Iranian American. So it's commonly believed that it's probably closer to 800,000 to a million. Where, yeah, where are the concentrations? Concentration being in Southern California, Northern California, the New York area, and the Washington metropolitan area. But we, at NIAC, the statistics we have, we essentially have members in every state, including in Puerto Rico. So Iranian Americans are all over the United States. Um, you know, it's like not a, you know, having sort of ethnic or, or diaspora-based um, pressure groups and political groups is just like a part of the American, you know, political tradition uh, here in the United States. There are all sorts of um, political coalitions and groups for, for, you know, each and every diaspora. What, um, how, I guess, politically so far, 
has your organization or or has the Iranian American community um, expressed themselves? Um, have there obviously the the Iranian nuclear deal is is a big focus of your organization and, and you, um, but are there like other issues that are kind of off the radar that that may not be as apparent to those of us who don't follow these issues quite closely? Um, in some ways, I think uh, there's some parallels between the Iranian American community and the Cuban American community. Uh, overwhelmingly, the community is, of course, opposed to the government in Iran. That's why they're here in the United States. The vast majority, as I mentioned, are not economic refugees, but they came here because of political reasons. Uh, at the same time, there has been a similar debate as it has been in the Cuban community on how to deal with the government in Iran. The older generation or the first wave probably um, held a stronger political view that it needs to be isolated, sanctioned. You do not talk to it. If you talk to it, you legitimize it, etc., etc. And we have seen consistently for the last 15 years um, that that viewpoint has become increasingly marginal and that while people continue to oppose the government, more and more believe that engagement, diplomacy, uh, and other forms of interaction is critical because the isolation has hurt the society far more so than hurting the regime. At the end of the day, the regime is still there after 35 years of sanctions and isolation. The human rights record has not improved as a result of those measures. And that it's been good time to test something else long before Iran turns into another Cuba. Um and what about on visa issues? I mean, how easy or difficult has it been for you to, to go to uh, Iran? Uh, well, I last time I was in Iran was probably, let's see, 2004, 2005. Going there is not an issue. Getting back home <laughs> is probably where the issue would be. Are um, you a U.S. citizen? I'm not a U.S. citizen yet. I'm a green card holder. I hold a Swedish passport. And like all Iranian Americans, you hold your Iranian passport, even if it's expired, until you actively uh, apply to get rid of it. But if you do that, then you're going to have a very hard time ever being able to go back to Iran. Do you have any like intentions of trying to become a naturalized American citizen? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to become a citizen uh, in due course. Uh, at the same time, I, I hope to be able to travel to Iran as well. Um, and uh, if the situation gets better, if there's a nuclear deal, if the situation inside the country improves and the government moves in a much more moderate and uh, reasonable direction, then, then hopefully um, uh, I will be able to make more visits. It is interesting to note, though, that you know I made that comparison to, to Cuban Americans. I don't know the statistics there, but the statistics uh, in the community is, though, that about half of the Iranian-American community actually travel to Iran at least once every two years. That's a pretty high number, I would say. Um, I mean, do they send remittances as well, would you say? I mean, is, is that a, a big, um, there's big been issue in the community? But that's become um, much more difficult uh, because of sanctions and financial sanctions. But there has been. I don't think, again, I, I, I don't have statistics on this, but I don't think it is... Um, um, comparable to some other communities that send people here to work really hard to send money back to a village in India or something like that. Uh, it's, it's not at that level, but there definitely has been uh, people who have sent money back or vice versa. A lot of students who come here who continue to be funded by their parents back in Iran. 
Um, well, Trita, before I let you go, any uh, big issues or projects you're you're working on? I know the uh, Iran nuke deal is something that you are, uh, you know, that I, I see you on it's, TV talking about a lot. Yeah, it's um, a pretty big deal. So uh, it's taking a lot, a lot and lot, a lot of our time. Um, I'm hoping. What's, what however, do you see your role in? What do you see your role in in sort of this? In, it, it, do you see your role, I guess, mainly as being sort of someone who would try to educate the American public on what the parameters of this deal would be and, and what the sort of potential implications are? I think are. we play several different roles. I mean, I think we've played a, an important role in the public debate because, again, as I mentioned with my dissertation and it being a controversial issue back then, it's completely accepted now. I think NIAC has played that role a lot when it comes to um, changing our understanding of the problem and the challenge that Yvonne poses and finding new ways of dealing with it. I mean, Today, you have John Kerry and the Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif speak regularly on the phone and even exchanging emails. This was unthinkable. Well, that was excellent. I've been wanting to speak with Trita for a while. Uh, if there is someone you want me to interview or a topic you want me to cover, just hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg with your suggestion, or you can send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com and I will make it happen. Also, remember you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes, and we now have this new standalone app for your iPhone, Android, or tablet. So check it out. Uh, And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.